This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system.
Good morning and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour where we dive into the heart of things and explore new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous and crazy world we live in. Today, we're going to be talking about what happens here at Goddard and what makes Goddard education so transformative and the kinds of people who are attracted to this sort of thing and reflecting on and celebrating a truly wonderful new book on education. Teaching Transformation, Progressive Education in Action, written and edited by my Goddard faculty guests here in the studio. And there are just too many of them to mention. Well, (laughs) so we'll go around and we'll let them introduce themselves and, and talk about what they do here. And I think to begin with, what I'd like to ask is, why did you write this book and why now? Goddard's been here for decades. So why did this book happen now? Okay, well, this is Lisa, and I'm one of the editors. Lisa Weil. Lisa Weil. And I think the main question to ask is why was this book never written before? Um, I just think what we do at Goddard, I think, is more cutting edge than ever and more necessary than ever. And it was originally Karen Goldberg's idea that we document somehow what we do. Because I think what Goddard does is distilled in this program. And I think that we're a good microcosm to study what the Goddard experiment really is. When you say that we... We, the Goddard Graduate Institute, because this book is specifically about us the Goddard Graduate Institute. And why is it necessary? Well, I just thought I might read this wonderful little cartoon that you have pasted onto your desk here. It's a little dialogue. Why do I have to go to school? And the answer is, so you can be molded into a state-approved homogenous drone that cannot think outside of the prescribed consensus. You will learn to repeat information instead of how to think for yourself so that you don't become a threat to the status quo. When you graduate, you will get a job, pay your taxes in order to perpetuate the corporate system of indentured servitude. Well, you just turn all that around, and that's what Goddard does. I mean, including the fact that you won't get a job. No, I don't. (laughs) Actually, um, as a matter of fact, there's plenty of documentation in the book of what our students have gone on to do in the world, and it's pretty impressive. Yeah, they're creating their own work. I hesitate to use the term job because I'm yeah. personally I I'm against jobs. I don't I'm not I don't believe in jobs. I think people need to find the work that that they love that's meaningful for them and jobs is is like the opposite to me. Yeah, that's a really good I like And I I, agree. I reflect on on an old thing that Wilhelm Reich said. He said work is love made visible. Yeah. Work is love made visible. That is Isn't so that beautiful. beautiful. That could be our Goddard motto. <laughs> at least that could be our GGI motto. Well, I think it, ultimately, <laughs> it's at the very least, it's the spirit of what's going on. Yeah. So maybe the others would like to take that. Does anyone else want to add to that? Can I just add to that? Um, this is Kat Lassard. Yeah, I also teach in the program, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, I think one of the other things that that was it's sort of compelling us to write this book is that it helped us to 
focus, how we articulate what we do here. And I think one of the ongoing, uh, I guess you would say, issues or problems we encounter is what we do here is often difficult to put into words. And so what happened with the book was, you know, we each had these different areas that we were writing about and ideas and um, to coalesce into something that, that gave a kind of a concrete foundation to something that is often ineffable in yeah. some way. So. And I just finished reading the book last night and I just found the book incredibly inspiring because like what you, Sarah, were talking about in the undiagnosed visionaries that many of the people that come to God and many of the students have never been recognized for their unique out-of-the-box thinking and and it's very easy to feel very alone and alienated in the world and feeling and questioning what's is there something wrong with me because it's painful and when we're in suffering and we're in pain we often blame ourselves somehow <coughs> we, we look for the fault within ourselves when that may not be the case and there's so many wonderful accounts of students as well as faculty about the magic that happens at Goddard and all of it deeply resonating with my feelings and thinking about education going back to even when I was in school, in high school. Well, I think that um, one of the, as you said, one of the qualities of many Goddard students is that they're creating the world, they're seeking to create the world in their vision of love and justice and expression. And they're they're seeking to bring into being things that don't exist yet. So it doesn't make sense to get a master's degree where someone else has decided what mastery is, what it looks like, um, what needs to be learned that comes from the past. When books that you need to read, right? To be an expert, to be an expert, right? You want to get close? We can share our, um, (laughs) or just yell it, (laughs) or just yell it. So there's a piece about creating your knowledge um, and creating your mastery and creating the world in that vision, and being supported to not be be supported by other people who are in that position, so that you're not invisible, right? And so. There's a really big piece about Goddard. It's not just an online program. It's a community building space. We were talking the other day about how one of our our degree requirements are like knowing, doing, and being, and one of them should be belonging. Um, and that that's a big part of what we do. And I kind of want to just slide the microphone to Lori because that's what she wrote about and maybe... Sure, yes. So I'm Lori Winters, uh, faculty also. And the piece about being invisible and not seen, the opportunity to come to a low residency format where you're living in visibility, in separate word, visibility, with other people and really knowing who you are as a scholar, an activist, a practitioner, a cultural creative, the many names that we have ourselves, the complexity of our multiple identities, and being seen and witnessed for who you are allows you to keep developing your vision and who you are because we are in relationship with other people. And it's the isolation and the alienation that's so painful that 
that keeps us in this place of suffering. So this residency component is so critical for our connection to ourselves and to each other, which then in, allows us a deeper connection to ourselves and our work in the world. So talk more about that, that experience of the low residencies. I've had wonderful conversations with probably about a dozen students in the last year, as well as a number of faculty. And one of the common threads is the amazing experience that the students have when they come to the residencies, that it's, it's just this amazing environment of learning and self-discovery and encountering other like-minded people and being so inspired to continue and to dive deeper into their own exploration and self-exploration and their study, whatever it might be. So can you flesh out more of that experience? Because you're, you're in there with them and you're helping to create that atmosphere as well. Sure. What was the question? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kidding, sort of. I don't know. You know, I think one of the things that's the most powerful and amazing about the residency is the idea that there is this group of people who, you know, are, are in pains in some way outside of, uh, of this environment and are these undiagnosed visionaries. And as you say, come together in this place and we create our own world for eight days together. And um, you're cut off from your regular life, which I think is really important. And you are seen as... Sarah was saying and Lori was saying, you're seen in a different way than you are seen in your everyday world. And I don't know, something happens. It's, you know, this is, now I'm back to not having language, but we, you leave the world, your, your normal everyday world behind you and you come and you're with a bunch of like-minded people, all of whom are pursuing amazing and profound and hopefully transformative projects and studies and every conversation you have, every meal you have, every workshop you go to, every presentation you see, and just, you know, hanging out in the dorms afterwards, you're in this amazing energy of everybody focused together to make something new. And we do have uh, something that tops off the, uh, the week uh, here at Goddard after we've been through all this agonizing and people have changed their study plans 15 times and are now in a different concentration and doing this. At the, at the end of the residency, we have an evening of cabaret, which is a anything-goes, over-the-top sort of event where you let off steam and show the skills and talents you, your family doesn't even know you possess, and maybe that's a good idea. And we, we even the faculty participates in this, and over the years we have done both the um, what the profane and the uh, grand and the sacred but but our starring act was on cue and yes and we we did we we hit our apex i guess you would say with our dry land synchronized swimming <laughs> which the faculty uh, late one night in the middle of something came up with the idea we were actually out at the pond there's a pond near goddard which is another part of our separate magical world um, and in the summer you can go and you can swim and we were there swimming with uh, and I believe it was Karen Campbell one of our faculty people who as a child had been a synchronized <laughs> swimmer in London <laughs> little known fact but she was and um, so we were having this conversation and somehow the idea that wait we could do synchronized swimming for cabaret on dry land um, and you, I can see from Tonio's face that he's <laughs> 
moved by how amazing that idea was. <laughs> and we actually executed that idea, and it, it was it was wild. But, um, yeah. Do you want to say more about that, well, Lisa? Well, I mean, the, Francis and Jim sat on either side of the stage yes. with fishing poles. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, oh. Sarah, Holding up a blue sheet yeah, here, that was supposed to be the water. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to... Uh, <laughs> so... Another dimension of living in community is the difficult feelings that emerge living in community. Yes. And while there's there's certainly this new normal that's created when we're here and a quality of vision quest for many of us, students and faculty, that we, we it's lifetime ritual. So when we go back to wherever we go back to, something's different. Mm-hmm. And... There's, there's difficult moments here also. There are people that are not cabaret people. There are people that their way of making meaning in the world and constructing knowledge is through observation and through uh, more of a contraction sort of personality um, than being very expansive. And it's not so easy for people like that all the time. And many others who at times feel marginalized, not part of this vibrant whole that we try to create. So... I think the residency also provides an opportunity and experience for all of us, both faculty and students, to navigate those places of discomfort and be off balance at times and not necessarily get to recalibration. But what is it to live in healthy relationship in those places of discomfort? I just want to add to that that um, it is not just a few students and it is not only students that, as a faculty person, I should speak for myself, but I think this is probably true for many of us. There's something about being here that brings up your shit and that you have to face it. I have, I've, I mean, it escalates whatever you're going through in your life. You face it here and it's more intense than it is at home and it's an opportunity for all of us. I, I think it's more than just a few students who don't fit in and you know and also to piggyback on that um um we have a group of of extreme introvert students who have found each other within you know the context of feeling marginalized and um sort of self-creating a group which is sort of an oxymoron of introverts so yes exactly you know the idea isn't that it's all frivolity and we're just all putting on our tutus to head to uh, the stage but yeah multi-layered but i think that's where the quality of the relationships that build up between the faculty and the students and the staff who are always Mm -hmm. attentive to the students is is the issue of intimacy and attentiveness it becomes an incredibly intimate relationship and the word intimate in education is a real no-no because i'm not your mum, i'm not your boyfriend or girlfriend and i'm not your sister and i'm not all of that stuff but there is a quality that becomes intimacy because the faculty are being attentive to each student's meaning the meaning they're making and so we're trying desperately hard to really hear it and to reflect back. Now, it can go off at times, but we keep on trying with that. And I think it's that attentiveness that Elizabeth Minnick, who's a wonderful philosopher, she wrote the book Transforming Knowledge many years ago, among many other books she's written. And she wrote the introduction to this book. She wrote the introduction to this book. But one of the things (laughs) she said a few years ago was that 
and or I'm stealing from her, I, I see the magic of Goddard emerging from the demand that Goddard's faculty, staff and students together tend to what Minnick calls the wellspring of our being. And uh, she, she says, by wellsprings, I mean the needs and gifts of our human being, not just some kinds and capacities or bodies or of intelligence or learning, and not just some emotional predispositions or expressions of spirit, but rather the given that we are always anew can become questions for ourselves. Oh. And beautiful. I think that's what we, maybe all of us, faculty included, are doing yes. throughout the residence. We're being questions for ourselves. And we're listening to each other. And just the act of listening can allow the person who's speaking to suddenly see the light of what it is they're looking for. So I think the attentiveness and intimacy is really important. I also think there's something about the unexpected that happens here. I don't think you can... I, coming into this environment, there's there's a sense that you don't know what to expect and within the unexpected there are constant openings um, yeah. and that's the magic of this whole yeah. process is mm. is stepping into a dangerous yes. risky unknown place where you don't necessarily have any idea what's going to occur and it can be terrifying mm -hmm. but it's opening to that space that opens up the possibilities of of that infinite horizon of quote-unquote magic that's possible as well, which, which is really what you guys are facilitating with your attentiveness and that desire to enter into that intimacy of listening and receiving and giving with each other, which just doesn't exist much out there, mm. but is so rich here. And I've had the wonderful fortune of experiencing that in my life living in a community many years ago that worked along those same ideas. So every time I hear students talk about this whole thing, I mean, I just love hearing this. It makes my heart sing to know that there's a place where people are coming and discovering themselves and being supported and growing and changing the world as well, making the world a better place through their contributions, which I think so many people never get the chance to contribute who they are and what they have to offer in a world that doesn't recognize them. So, Tonio, this, what you said made me think of this time that we're living in now where there's a, a waking up for many people. There's a continued awakening for people that have been woken and a sense of urgency and... I teach it to other universities and there's this conversation about safe spaces, creating mm. safe spaces. And then the dialogue has now moved to creating brave spaces. And we create brave space here at Goddard. Mm. And that connects to the intimacy that you were talking about, Karen, and how to keep living into that brave space in us and creating that for each other and reflecting that back to each other. One of the things that I've been thinking as we've been talking is how creating the kinds of space that we're describing, brave space, human space, space to be human, 
in an incredible range of, you know, the quality of intimacy to the quality of humor and why cabaret is actually important for bringing out the full human piece. I think that one of the things that is important to highlight is that this actually hones the rigor of scholarship as well. This isn't as if Goddard is a therapeutic environment where people get degrees. It's actually a place where we understand how these things that we're talking about make possible a much more engaged, refined, supple, and intense relationship to the scholarly and activist conversations that are happening in the world so that our students are positioned not to be just another nutritionist or just another this or just another that, but they're actually positioning themselves to be leaders and to take that quote, undiagnosed visionariness and bring it around to a leadership place. I'm glad you said that because, um, you know, to add to what we've said about the intimacy and the attentiveness, the students have written theses that are just stunningly rigorous and interdisciplinary because what we're equipping them to do is just to blow through disciplinary boundaries with their think with the force of their thinking mm-hmm. and of their passion and since i was educated in ivy league schools and taught in ivy league schools and there's just no comparison between the kind of thinking that happens here in every respect it's just it's it's full it's juicy it's whole and it's rigorous mm-hmm. it's fresh <laughs> yes it's fresh Busting through old paradigms of thinking and yeah. and yeah. and models of knowledge and, yeah. and things like that, mm-hmm. and there's another critical thing that should be intuitive to all human beings, and that is the interrelationship between the student, what they're studying, and the environment that they're the context in which it's all occurring. It's all a whole. It, Mm. They're not separate things. And in our society and in our traditional education systems, things are broken down into these artificial divisions. And after that, nobody seems to know or or at least to remember to put them together in any meaningful way. I think that students recognize once they get here that the stakes are actually high. And I think that's a sense that you're not given with your life and with what you do, that you, that there's a respect for the intensity and the the fact that what you do is important. Yeah, you know, and um, and, and what you don't, if you and if you don't do what you have inside of you, exactly, exactly. So that you know, you could have another situation where people come together for eight days and they have a kind of educational blah 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 going on, and everybody would have maybe a good time, and you know, make a lanyard on the side or something. <laughs> but what happens here is the combination of the rigor and the, you know, all of the different levels, but that there's a recognition that, you know, shit's happening and the stakes are high and what you do really matters. Yeah. You yeah. know, what yeah. you do matters. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so. and everyone is significant. Exactly. There is nobody who is insignificant. And so... I think uh, one of the reasons that things get quite powerful at residencies in particular in the beginning is because they're not in competition. Every single student is designing their very own study. And 
they may share various resources, they may even undertake similar practices at some point, but they're not in the position of sitting in a classroom reading pre-assigned readings and trying to make the professor impressed that, oh, I got all the main points, teacher. <laughs> there's none of that going on. And therefore, there's a lot more sharing between them all. So that mm, somebody may have a nice bibliography planned out, all the best stuff for my field, and somebody else says, hey, have you ever heard of this person who thinks like this? And it's like, oh, wait a minute. There's a whole new other perspective. There are people, there are hidden knowledges that have never really been explored, or wait a minute, is this book really God's gift to knowledge, or should I be dismantling it a little bit to see what's being glassed over. So I think all that kind of thing breaks up. Mm, yeah, um, questioning the underlying assumptions right. that people are are not, most people don't question. Right. Yeah. yeah. The level of sharing, I think that can't be overstated, how yeah. much our students, I mean, just the sharing in conversations at residencies. I mean, I just had a student who's finishing, just graduating this semester, whose thesis took shape thanks to what she was able to glean from another person's thesis on drugs, actually, Britta's thesis on drugs, where she writes about the importance of set and setting. If you're taking a mind-enhancing drug, that, that the set and the setting are perhaps even more important, and the intention are more important than the substance itself. And the student is writing about being a cook, a gourmet cook and a farm-to-table chef who can no longer afford the best kind of butchered meat. It's, she's having to go to stores and buy feedlot beef. And I said, well, think about what Britta... And she thought about what Britta had said about set and setting and understood that because she was cooking this feedlot beef at home with candles, with got nice music, and that she was cooking it and braising it with the same kind of love and attention that she would have used on that other meat that she used to buy when she had the money and because her intention was to nourish and connect that in fact that changed everything so that was directly due to having read this this other thesis which is on the surface about something completely different <laughs> and that's, that's such a, kind a of, that's such a powerful question to ask about these kind of interrelationships like something that's pristine but it's treated without any awareness or any care or any love. Mm. How valuable, how nourishing could that be compared to something that's maybe poisonous and somehow transformed into something wonderful through love? Yeah. And I mean, the, the possibilities are there beyond old traditional ways of thinking. Yeah. And only by asking those questions and really diving into them can we even consider the possibilities. Yeah. And... One thing that we're learning a lot through quantum physics and other areas of science is that a lot of the old assumptions are not true. The ones that were hard and fast and incontrovertible are no longer hard and fast and incontrovertible. And perhaps the entire universe and everything, all the knowledge, all the assumptions we've ever made are like that as well. Mm -hmm. We are subtly guiding our students in that direction all the time. Subtly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not so subtly. <laughs> I edited 
just about all the pieces that the faculty wrote in this book. And in some cases, I worked with faculty to write these pieces. And initially, I wondered about this title, Teaching Transformation. What exactly did that mean? Shouldn't it be learning is transformation? And what is actually, you know, can you teach transformation? But um, what I came to feel as I was editing is that the title is kind of accurate because what it really is, it's about teaching as transformation because every single one of us has been so transformed by teaching here. And that really came through to me as I was reading what people wrote. It's just been, I don't know if the rest of you want to talk to that, but I myself have, it's unbelievable. I mean, I've come to embrace hard science as someone who was allergic to it when I, I mean, I was just this liberal arts comparative literature all the way through. And now in embodiment studies, which I'm very involved in, I, I, I have to read neuroscience and I actually love it. And now biology feels more important to me than anything. And it feels like it should be important for everyone now that we're losing <laughs> so many wild creatures and plants. And every student I've worked with has just filled me with something I didn't have before. And I don't think this happens. It doesn't happen at other institutions because I've taught at other institutions. Just how incredibly restructured I've been by teaching here. Yeah, so teaching... Teaching transformation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if any of the rest of you want to say anything about that. Well, I was just thinking back to when I was a student at Garden um, a long time ago, needless to say. But um, when my letter would come back from my advisor, who terrified me, by the way, she was the head of the program, and I thought she was about six foot seven until I met her when I finally graduated I met her again and realized she was not much bigger than me. But anyway, <laughs> she loomed big in my consciousness. And whenever I got her letters back um, and she'd write on my packets, this is before email, she used to write IR in the margins of my packets and explain that this was you're not being clear for the ignorant reader. And then in her letters, she'd offer all kinds of off-the-wall, considering what my topic was. She would come from out of field with other observations about, you know, some Chinese philosopher or a Hindu leader or something that was way away from where I was. And I would be so excited. I would carry those letters from her around with me on trains and buses and just keep going over and over and over because the dialogue was so intense and so exciting. And I was forever thinking, oh, my God, the clouds are banged over my head and I can't see any light. And then suddenly, ding, they'd split apart and a little ray of light would come down and show me the next step. But it was just an incredibly thrilling experience. That reminds me of somebody, I think it was maybe in a TED Talk, somebody was talking about when ideas have sex. Mm. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, that's very good. So then how do you think the person on the other end of that exchange might have felt? Oh, I'm pretty sure she was very, very engaged because we're still friends to this day. I mean, we still have very, very long exchanges. And, you know, we're going back 20-odd years. So, and I know because of 
her that that when I became an advisor, I was approaching the students in the same way, trying to get engaged in my letters, in dialogue with them. And right at the beginning, when we're first hired, our program director looks at what we write to students before we actually send it to make sure we're not going to destroy somebody's ego. And she said, you know, your letters are too long. And I said, but they're the same length as yours were to me. Oh, <laughs> and really? Yes, yeah. And she said, oh, I suppose so. <laughs> you must be engaged, you know. And it, it really was. It became this huge engagement. Jumping off of that, and, and Lisa, also what you said, we are continuing to redefine what it means to be a teacher. <laughs> like, what that means. And I think I learned so much about becoming more of a teacher by being a student here mm. in the MFA IA program and Danielle Boutte was my advisor and I was totally freaked out yes. and it, it transformed my life in so many ways because the faculty redefine what power is and our relationship to each other is we fall in love with each other and our ideas are our love making with each other for sure and Parker Palmer writes something, I'm paraphrasing, that, that as teachers we project the nature of our soul out onto the world around us. And you know, all this professional development training to be a better teacher and learn this method and learn that method, it doesn't, it, it's a skill set maybe, but it's who we are as human beings. And that's what advisors bring to the space in a very courageous, vulnerable, brave way, which then gives advisees permission to step into their vocation. You talked about the difference between a job and work, and I don't know who uh, said this, something about our vocation is really where our, our greatest calling meets the greatest hunger in the world. And Sarah, you had something you want to say. I think it had to do with the, the power yeah, I, I think that the power piece is really important to articulate in traditional educational environments. The teacher is in a position of power, and there are very explicit and also very subtle ways that that position is maintained at the expense of some piece of the other human being. So Goddard advisors really meet students in such a way that allows those students to be bigger than us. That we don't need to have that subtle thing where we make sure that they remember that they're still students. And possibly this might not be clear to everybody, but the process of what, how we do this work over the course of the semester, we come for this residency and these letters we're talking about, is the dialogue that we have with our students. And I think that piggybacking on that, there's something, and we're writing, we're writing to each other back and forth. The student is sending you work and writing you a letter and you're responding to that work and putting things on paper is exposing, right, in some way. And so as a faculty person, even just your ideas in response to your student's work is an, a laying yourself open in some way, which also totally defeats yeah. that power thing. I mean, it change, It's a, it's a hor it becomes horizontal as opposed to... Yeah, and um, it's, you know, when you write letters to people, you write letters to people that you care about. I remember when I wrote my first letter to a student, it was more, and consistently, what students get out of a semester at Goddard is far more than I ever got 
in my entire 11-year yeah. PhD program exactly. at a traditional. You guys really care about each other. You're entering into a deeply intimate relationship. Yeah. Right. That's, and if you that's think the about, magic. Right. Yes. And not just the magic, but like, to put it in very banal terms, the value. Like, mm -hmm. it really is valuable to have that much energy devoted to your work in a short period of time. It does heat it up quite a bit. Now, there's a difference. You're not dealing with 30 or 100 students at a time where many universities are dealing, professors have to deal with more students than they can handle at mm -hmm. once and really give each student the attention that they deserve and, and that the teacher probably really wants to be able to give. Yeah, and it's the model. So in, in doctoral programs, you know, advisors have a small number of students like the small number we have. So it's comparable. It's not like you're teaching a class of 50 people. That's not comparable. But it is comparable to say, okay, I'm, I'm nourishing the scholarship and the professional evolution of eight people. At Goddard, we really give those eight people a lot. I mean, there is the model, the structure, the pedagogy, whatever it is, is very generous. Yeah. I think the element of care is deeply critical here. And I wrote about this maternal ethic of care. And Elizabeth Minnick was one of my advisors at Union Institute where the model, it's not Goddard, but there's some similarity around this ethic of deep care. Yeah. I think actually the director of the Graduate Institute, Ruth Farmer, has written a really beautiful piece explaining the relationship between students and advisors as not leader and followers, but often switching roles with each other in order to achieve where we all need to go. And I think that says, says it quite beautifully. Mm. Yes, I mean, it's almost a cliche now that teachers, by your students, you'll be taught. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it got, it's just in a whole other dimension here. It's how much you learn from the student. I'm in awe of what my students know often. And as I say, I just feel like most of the learning that I've done over the last 20 years, I've done via Goddard students, really. They have been my resource in many, many ways. They're the ones who are really actively expanding the range of knowledge. They are, yeah. So how could it be any other way? Yeah. And God help those teachers and professors who think they know it all. <laughs> and God help the rest of us and who are subject students. to the world that they create and reinforce. I know. Yeah, there's this wonderful quote that, I don't know who said it, but it's from the book. Leaders empower others with influence and power, and to empower another person is one of the noblest gifts we're capable of giving. I think that's Ruth. Yeah. That's um, our program director, Ruth Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that this comes from our program director is important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk more about being a teacher. I'd like to hear the relationships that you've had with the students and what teaching is to you and help dispel the illusions of what being a teacher and teaching is that are prevailing out there. I think one of the first influences on my thinking about teaching was when I was 
18, 19, 20, reading R.S. Peter's inaugural lecture at the University of London in which he talks about education as initiation and he damns the idea of calling teachers instructors because an instructor assumes that you're sort of offering a finite amount of knowledge and skill to people. But if you're helping to initiate people into different areas of learning... Now, I've gone somewhat beyond that now in that I don't think that there are finite... Even in within one discipline, there is not a finite bunch of knowledge to be initiated into. Rather, it needs to be broken open. But at least... The idea that teachers are not instructors was one strong thing that hit me around an early age. And it should probably be said that the person saying this, Karen Campbell, is considered the go-to person for books, for scholarship, in just about any area, because she's probably as well-read and instructed as anyone that any of us have met. So it's interesting that you are saying that. (laughs) Every student who introduces you said... Well, she knows everything. <laughs> she, she can just give you a book list in any field. So not true. <laughs> and we also, the faculty also uses her as a resource. Uh-huh. Yeah, we use each other, though. I mean, it's so crazy. I loved what you said earlier about the lack of competition that goes, and that because everyone's doing their own thing, there isn't this desire to impress the teacher. Mm-hmm. And when you have that kind of intimate, yeah. caring relationship one-on-one, you, you go beyond those kind of distractions, which can really rob you of the opportunity to dive into what's really important. Right, right. I think you hit the nail on the head there, because if, if I'm trying to impress the teacher, I'm actually not really seeing where this knowledge is going. I've got somewhere in my mind, I've got, I know there's a point I'm supposed to get and feed back to the teacher, and I'm missing everything else that might lead me elsewhere. Yeah. I think there's something about teaching us reclaiming, redefining teacher that we are, one of our our charges is to help students find their place at the table so they're part of the big conversation, whatever it happens to be about. And I've been thinking about this lately, where does this come from for me and for me, it happened. My daughter is, we're Jewish, and uh, she's studying for her bat mitzvah. And I keep thinking, that's for me personally where that comes from. The, part of my religious spiritual tradition is this rite of passage that happens when you're 13 or 14, where you have to read a passage from text, from sacred text, learn it, understand it, be able to argue it, discuss it, do a teaching on it, sing a gazillion prayers about it. And then you have a place at the table and you have a voice and your voice matters and it matters when you're an adolescent. Mm -hmm. So this idea of us somehow creating a support structure for our advisees to have a place at many tables. Mm -hmm. And to put up with anxiety. That too. You know, I mean, so often during the semester somebody will get bogged down or just not able to see where the dots will connect in a way that's going to really contribute what they want to contribute. And um, I think each advisor works out ways of helping to reassure a student, you know, you don't actually have to get an answer, not even this semester. The main thing is you've got a question there. And it's painful to sit with it. Mm -hmm. I was reading 
we peer review each other every few years. We read each other's letters to students. And I was reading one of Cat's when a student had gone down a rabbit hole and she so eloquently and funnily made it possible for the student to sit there and not feel ashamed, but to understand that what she thought was failure actually was an opportunity to rummage around or just mm. sit in the mud for a bit. <laughs> I don't think Kat said that, but... Another thing that I think that we do is validate other ways of knowing and forms of intelligence yeah. that the student themselves have diminished or not even yeah. understood that yeah. they had. And, yeah. for example, uh, Julie, you know, just mentioned to me that she'd been talking to Stones and just kind of self-deprecatingly said that she did this. And and then she, she'd having, been having trouble writing about her connection to nature. But when she wrote, wrote about talking to Stones, it was beautiful. It just flowed, you know, because she narrated what she was doing. And she obviously had this deep connection. So I said, have you ever thought about starting with that? And, well, could I really do that? <laughs> really? I mean, but this is a graduate institution. And I said, well, yeah, but we're all about knowing. What, what is it that you deeply know? And, and then expanding. you find ways to support it. Mm -hmm. You will find ways to support it, but support with what, where your own intelligence is guiding you. Yeah, so we support them in doing that. That's such a great example, because in your introduction to em the embodiment studies mm. part of the book, you talk very eloquently about how some of the students come in very inarticulate, yeah, totally clueless about how oh, they're yeah. going to put it together and make it work, and in, and in despair, and how people emerge rather quickly from that. And I, from back in my days when I went to college, I remember quickly realizing my disillusionment and asking other people what they were doing there, just being curious. I just realized that this isn't it for me. Why are you here? And people were clueless. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody yeah. was clueless. Yeah. Even the people that, that <laughs> thought they knew what they were oh, there yeah. for revealed that they weren't there for themselves, even. Yeah. There wasn't mm -hmm. for their own ideas, it wasn't for their own passion. In that sense, pursuit. I think you could take just about any Goddard student and put them side by side with a random student at a traditional university, and you would feel the difference. In the, not that, that, there's not a, that they can't articulate, but in what's being articulated and the connection to the students, or, you know, with what's deeply inside that student. Their belly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the kishkas, right. It's just, and to what's happening outside, you know, and, and all of it together. It's, it's impressive. And what we see by the end, each graduating student, when we see those graduating student presentations, and some of them have been very confused and inarticulate, and frankly kind of boring when they came in. <laughs> and by the end, it's unbelievable the command they have. And I always say I like to use the word mastery because I see it in those graduating student presentations. I see mastery. Mm -hmm. When Lisa was speaking just now, you can't see it, she gestured to her like belly space and her abdomen space and was talking about the Goddard experience of learning and knowing, and this is directly tied into embodiment studies, that knowing something, there's a Yiddish word, kishkas, it, it means your organs, knowing something in every organ in your body. Like, what does your liver know? What does your spleen know? This is not crazy thinking, and 
it's not it's it's subversive to the dominant educational academic world but here students have permission like when your student said i could do that i could start with yeah. writing mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. my talking is like the permission to trust what your body knows yeah. Yeah. embodiment studies is not an official program at goddard yet but it yeah. seems to be underlying all the studies here in a way well, I said, I did <laughs> I say, say I would contend that is the preeminent instance of our pedagogy and the GG because so many of the things that we do in the program, we do in embody, except it's just more conscious. And sometimes it's systematic, but it's the same idea, uh, really, of beginning with your experience and... I don't know. I wrote this. What did I write? <laughs> I'll say something. Okay, Lisa. Um, one of the things that happens when you do that is that you realize that other scholars and thinkers and, you know, people who write books and therefore become real are also human and engaging with what they know for real. And so you're now in a much deeper dialogue with quote scholarship or not even quote you're in a deeper dialogue with scholarship because you're able to read it from a deeper place it's not as if you only go somewhere else and do something else other than rigorous scholarship what you do with your body allows you to engage everything in a deeper way yeah um, i'm gonna add something that um, was written by one of our first students in embodiment studies juliana barrero this is a quote from the book, because I think that what she's saying about bodies could be said about what we do in this program. When we understand what it means to be bodies, thinking, feeling, perceiving, and making contact are no longer separate things. Bodies change. They unfold again and again, limitlessly. Bodies are never finished. To be a body is to be always incomplete, always in process. And this is the greatest place of possibility. I also think embodiment is about everything becoming integrated, not just knowing with your head yes. something Thank or other, you, yes. but knowing because you've actually tested it in action and the testing has reformulated your body. Putting things into words reformulates your entire body. So remember a student who had a great block against academic writing. And she was so smart and beautiful. In the end, she wrote her thesis as a play yes. with you. And yeah. she brought in all of the scholars she wanted to quote came yeah. into the play. Lisa something. Lisa, yes. Yeah. And it, you know, it just showed that finally when she broke through, and my goodness, it took, what, three or four semesters for her to break this wall down and get over academic writing is not me, to write this beautiful mm -hmm. play that was all her and had integrated all of her knowledge in a way that spoke to other people. It was just beautiful. Yeah. And you just used that magic word, integration. Yes, that's exactly that's, it. Mm. And connection. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, th those are two words that in embodiment studies, they're absolutely central. Integrate Only connect. connect. Bringing it all back together. Mm. Yeah. Recognizing the interrelationship and the wholeness of, of all things, mm. which, again, as human beings in physical bodies, should be obvious yeah but it's anything but in our culture in our society yeah the goddard graduate institute is a multidisciplinary community and container of scholar activists who are working across disciplines and creating this very juicy 
conversation. There's a health arts program, there's a social innovation and sustainability program, and then the individualized MA program that all live together. And also, Lisa, you wanted to make sure that we got into talking about why this kind of education is so important at this time in, in our Actually, in yes, our political history, exactly, in what's going on in the world today, and how all of this is interrelated. Right. So, one of the things that's interesting as an experiment and a challenge at the at the Graduate Institute is the bringing together of these different programs and different kinds of scholars. And at this moment of you know ongoing political, economic, and ecological crises that have been perhaps made acute and amplified in the last Mm. month or so, that kind of coming together and that kind of community building and conversations across disciplines, I think is so much more important to be able to recognize that the problems of the world and the questions of the world really can't be answered in silos. And we really do need to be able to talk to each other and to exchange our metaphors and to exchange our strategies. You know, when health arts students talk about diagnosis, for instance, or being able to, you know, see through the surface of symptoms to what the real ailment is. That's a metaphor that can travel out of health arts and into another discipline very easily. And so those conversations are rich. It's like turning the soil and really creating very nourishing soil. And we're out of time, unfortunately. (laughs) But there's this quote that I just want to rattle off. Leaders trying to create new realities require the capacity to unite the separate. And that's it. Thank you, Lisa Weil, Sarah Van Hoy, Lori Winters, Karen Campbell, and Kat Lassard. Thank you, Tonio.